at Ben and Jerry's pre-pandemic time, we normally have about 40 dogs in the office. And that's about one dog for every two employees. So the dogs get to come into the office. They have to stay in employees' kind of office spaces, whether that be a cubicle or an internal office. And we keep them contained with dog gates and entertained with lots of toys and treats. But it's so nice having dogs in the office. It's, I think, the bigger perk than the free ice cream. And I know that's probably going to be disagreed on with some other people, but I really like having my dogs with me every day at the office. Today we're talking about pets at work, from dogs under your desk to paternity leave. Are pandemic puppies taking over the office and how far should companies go to welcome our four-legged friends? On today's Working It with me, Isabel Berwick, we're kicking off with a company that's absolutely besotted with dogs, or as they put it, canine to fivers. I am Lindsay Bumps. I'm the global marketing specialist at Ben & Jerry's. I've been with the company for almost nine years now, which is insane. I also lead the canine culture committee, and I have two dogs that go to work with me when we're in the office. I have a French bulldog who's 10 years old. His name is Spock, and I also have an eight-month-old French bulldog puppy, and her name is Sadie. And yes, she is a quarantine dog, or pandemic puppy, I think is the right term. For Ben and Jerry's, this is nothing new. The ice cream company's had a dog-friendly office since it was founded in 1978, prompted by a graphic designer bringing in their beloved pooch. And in 2000, Ben and Jerry's decided to formalise guidelines, and they've continued to refine them over the years, including setting up the Canine Culture Committee, which not only makes sure the dogs and their owners are happy, but it also lays on perks like dog trainers or vet visits. I will say that we did just send out an email to all of the employees kind of checking in on the dog roster. You know, who got new dogs? Are there dogs that won't be coming back to the office for whatever reason? All of our dogs have nameplates at our desks. So who needs a new nameplate? I'm joined by Henry Mance, the FT's chief feature writer, who's written about pets in offices and not to mention a whole book about how to be an animal lover in the 21st century. Henry, are you a dog owner, dog lover? I'm not. I'm a cat owner. I'm a dog lover, I have to say, but I'm a cat owner. And I think one of the reasons I don't have a dog is because I realise the commitment it entails. And I wouldn't want to leave a dog at home all day while I was at work. And so I really understand the urge by some people who have dogs, who love dogs, to bring them in. There's been a whole societal shift, it seems, in the pandemic. I mean, you've written about this. 23 million Americans adopted a pet during the pandemic. What are the stats in this country? You, did you look at the UK as well? Yeah, this, I mean, the stats are a bit mixed. I mean, so the, there was this initial survey, I think, in 2021, which said that, you know, basically one in five US households had acquired a dog or a cat. And so that sounds like a huge pet boom. And I think you've got shares of pet care companies going up. And it, it all seems to add to this idea that there are millions more dogs. In fact, a later quite rigorous survey for the ASPCA 
found that there hadn't been an increase in dog and cat ownership in the US. I mean, there does seem to have been one in Britain, a million more maybe. But I think more than the actual numbers of dogs, it's two things are really important. First of all, this ASPCA survey found that adults under 35 were more likely to have rehomed pets than older adults. So I think you have sort of some younger people having dogs who maybe wouldn't have had had it not been for the pandemic. But I also think that people have just become much more aware of their pets' lives in those periods of lockdown. And they feel much less easily separated from their pets. And, you know, there was a survey in April, May 2020 by someone at the University of York, where basically 95% of pet owners said that they couldn't imagine going through this time without their animal. And that kind of bond is now very difficult for employers just to tear up. And I think already before the pandemic, if you were trying to adopt a pet or rehome a pet, some charities were saying, look, you can't leave this pet at home all day. Someone needs to be checking in with it every four hours or so. I think that's Battersea Dogs Home advice, for example. So, yeah, I think there's a societal shift and it's towards no longer seeing your dog as something disposable. That I mean, not that long ago, people used to take their pets out and you know shoot them in the backyard when they were too ill. I mean, we just completely changed our attitudes to animals. Exactly. But I just wonder how far workplaces should accommodate. I mean, you mentioned there that a lot of the new pet owners are younger and millennials and Gen Z, I think, have different expectations from the workplace. But it seems like the ultimate erosion of work-life boundaries. Or is it a natural extension of animals who are companions to people? I mean, you've written about this in your book. People do see their pets as extensions of themselves or part of their family. How does that play out in the workplace, though? Yeah, exactly. I think I see it as part of a trend. So you have people expecting the workplace to reflect their politics, their identity, whether it's their sexuality or their broader family links. And now they expect the workplace to, in some cases, and I don't think all workers expect this, but some do, and um, we'll come on to maybe some of the reasons why, but they do expect them to recognise that very strong emotional bond they have. And I think some of the reasons are actually quite practical. Like one person I spoke to was a lawyer at a London company, and they said that before the pandemic, they could find doggy daycare and it wasn't that expensive. But now, actually, it was really quite expensive. It had become more competitive in London to find daycare for their dog. And so it was going to have a financial cost to come back to the office. And for an employer who's telling you to come back and you're saying, well, actually, I might just work at home if it has this benefit. So I think for the employer, there's an opportunity there if you can offer free food or you know smoothies or whatever else to lure people back into the office. Or you can make the office have some of the perks of home, which include being with your pet. It's interesting because the demand to bring pets to work is something that a lot of managers are now facing for the first time after the pandemic, unlike Ben & Jerry's who's got decades of experience. And Lindsay has some advice for managers on this. I would say start small. Talk to other organisations that are your size or similar to your setup on how they've been successful in having a dog-friendly workplace Ben & Jerry's has actually worked very closely with a similar values-led business located here in Vermont called Gardner Supply. They're much smaller than us, but they wanted to be a dog-friendly office. So we worked closely with them to share our best practices and what has worked and what didn't work. And they've successfully turned it into a dog-friendly workplace themselves. They started small. They put together guidelines that would work for their office. And they tested it out knowing that it wasn't going to be perfect out of the gate. And I think that allowed for some troubleshooting. That allowed for concerns to be voiced and conversation to be had. And then they actually brought the dogs in. And it 
ended up, you know, taking a little bit of time to adjust. You know, you don't really know how a dog's going to react when they come into a new setting. So being patient with this kind of process of bringing them in and adjusting, and now they're a dog-friendly office. So, Henry, is the brutal truth that if managers or owners of businesses are dog lovers, they're going to make it easy? It seems to me that a lot of the companies that are bringing in dogs are small companies or tech companies. Is that overall what you found? Yeah, speaking to people, I think this is really part of how it happens, is that the boss wants to do it, and therefore they're not unself-aware enough to say, only I'm going to be able to bring in my dog. So they sort of create a culture in which that's possible. I think someone with sort of power over facilities, you know, this lawyer I mentioned, I think her frustration was that her company had moved offices and none of the people involved in the relocation had been dog lovers, but wanted to bring their pets to the office. And therefore, none of them had pushed the property company to make that a part of the lease. And so the new office came with a lease that said people couldn't bring their pets to the office. So I think when people in charge, either at the very top of companies or with their hand on the facilities tiller, <laughs> when they have a vested interest in it, they make it happen. And then I think it stops being such a formal thing of, right, we need to draw up a policy, which obviously happens later down the line. But if it can just sort of be that experimental thing of, I'll do it, and then let's see if it works, then I think it has a much better chance of succeeding. And is there any evidence that it makes people happier? I mean, all the people who bring their dogs in are obviously very happy. But is there any wider evidence? I mean, stroking dogs in hospitals is helpful. There's been lots of research on that. But what about dogs in offices? There hasn't been loads of research. I mean, there is evidence that for a pet owner having their dog around reduces stress. And it's not quite clear whether that also works for people who just incidentally come into contact with the dog. But, I mean, there's lots of anecdotal evidence that people say it sort of allows conversations, that dogs actually help socialise humans, that, you know, it gives someone a reason to come around to my office. One of the researchers I spoke to pointed out that there hasn't been an attempt really to go out and look for downsides of dogs in offices. So the scientific research has to be taken with, you know, some pinch of salt. I think the downsides of dogs in offices are perhaps obvious to the, what, 10 or 20% of people who are allergic to dogs. Are their feelings not being taken into consideration? I think this is a really interesting question about... So, so, okay, so you have allergies and misbehaviour, and I think those are the real problems. With an allergy, it may be manageable to the extent of there may be parts of the office where the dog can go, and then other people have to sit in a, a different office. But if it's a small company, what happens? And what happens if initially that nobody has an allergy, but then someone joins who does have an allergy or someone develops an allergy? Can you simply change the policy and then everyone has to sort of stop bringing their dogs in and find doggy daycare options? Or with misbehaviour, I think there are sort of slightly more established practice. Places like Ben and Jerry's have basically a three strikes and you're out rule. You know, so if you do a mess on the carpet, you sort of get steered in the right direction, but two more and then you're no longer coming to the office. And I think the other thing perhaps we haven't talked about, are there are cultural reasons why people don't want to be around dogs and also just plain fear. And I think those things don't get talked about. But I think this is such an early stage change in corporate culture. Maybe in a couple of years, we will have worked these things out. We will have changed. I think we're almost at a tipping point. I think dogs in offices are a real, I've got to say canary in the coal mine. That's perhaps not very fortunate. But do you know what I mean, Henry? I think this is a real bellwether, actually, of corporate culture. Yeah, I think so. I think it comes down to communication. So if someone starts bringing in their dog and the dog is near you and you haven't been consulted, your concerns haven't been taken on board, then I think you are going to get resentful and 
you're also all the other resentments you have about this coworker, which let's face it, in an office is often a dozen things, are going to get magnified. And you know, the dog becomes a lightning rod for your sort of discontent. And I think if any company is thinking of changing or any organization is thinking of allowing in dogs, one of the best things I heard is you've got to have a conversation. You've got to allow people to express their anxiety. It can't just be yippee, we're having dogs in offices. Does anyone have any concerns? What are those concerns? Can we address them? Can we do dedicated spaces or some kind of rules? And a couple of people who have brought their dogs in have found people who are initially reluctant become quite positive about it, make a real effort if they feel they're heard. If they feel they're not heard, then you have a conflict. I think that's the same for any aspect of corporate culture. It seems a very sensible advice. Let's see what the readers said under your article, Henry. Why not just send the dog to the office and relax at home? That's my favourite comment. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I worked in an office where the presence of a colleague's elderly flatulent dog did little to improve my day. The same company offered free booze on Fridays as well as cake days and free fruit. Oh, and of course, shudders inverted commas, fancy dress parties. Because of the dog-booze parties combo, they believe they had a wonderful work culture. But in my experience, dogs in offices tend to be a poor proxy for decent organisational culture. So I suppose that's a reader there suggesting that, yes, dogs are a front for suggesting that you're what you're not as a company, but almost like virtue signalling. Yeah, I mean, should you need a dog to motivate people to come into the office or to do their work? I understand that. I mean, I I think the one that sort of most infuriated me in the comments was, if you allow dogs, you have to allow babies. It's like, well, dogs do sleep maybe 17 hours a day. So this isn't really like having a toddler under your desk. No, and at this point, I'm just going to bring in the cautionary tale of my poor friend who had to leave her job, a very desirable job, because her colleague's Alsatian spent the whole day with its head in her crotch. And nobody... (laughs) would do anything about it. So there we are. That's just my anecdote. But Lindsay has some very good ideas on how to socialise dogs that have initial problems in the office. We haven't had any issues of dogs um, putting their heads in people's crotches. (laughs) But I think... In our office setting, you know, keeping the dogs with the owners and not letting them have free reign definitely helps. I have a coworker who shares a wall with me who's not the biggest dog fan, but he also understands how important it is for our culture and for a lot of the other employees to bring their dogs in that he tolerates it or deals with it. Um, We do have a couple of people that have allergies that we've had to accommodate, and we've been able to do that without much difficulty. I think in our setting, we have a very big office. It's very open. There's lots of space. We have high ceilings. So the people with allergies haven't had any issues. And if an issue does come up, we work with it. You know, we don't just ban the dog or tell the employee that they have to adjust and deal with it. We put some real concrete effort into resolving the issue. We had a small older dog a few years ago that was going a little bit senile and she started barking a lot. And instead of saying, no, you can't bring her in anymore, we worked with the owner and figured out a way to resolve the barking. And we were successful in that. So that's a good example of how and why we have a canine culture committee. And it's important for that committee to be led by employees and not leadership. But on the flip side, you know, my dogs make me actually have to physically get up from my desk a couple times a day to take them outside and go for a walk. So I get extra energy and exercise and I am forced to take a little bit of a break. And I think it helps my mental well-being and obviously helps 
their physical and mental well-being too. So are there other pets coming into the office or is it just dogs? We obviously are only dog friendly at this point, but I can recall, gosh, probably five or six years ago now, a coworker kind of jokingly asked our CEO at the time if he would consider allowing her miniature pony to come into the office. And our CEO at the time, very, very nice guy, very funny, knew that she was joking a little bit, but was like, no, I don't think we're going to be mini pony friendly at this point. But that's not to say that we wouldn't try it at some point. You know, if somebody had a miniature pony that provided assistance to them, um, which I've seen that mini ponies can be like seeing eye ponies or medical support, uh, we would never turn that away. I don't think we're going to be cat friendly anytime soon. I don't think the dogs would appreciate that. But I will say that we have been fish friendly in the past. We've had a couple of fish bowls at desks. So dogs and fish for now. (laughs) Dogs, fish, what else have you come across, Henry? Um, I mean, I think it's worth saying that dogs are are really special animals in terms of we've been around them for 40,000 years. There's this co-domestication and they really do respond to our signals in a way that other intelligent animals don't. And indeed, during the pandemic, there were reports that cats were getting more UTIs because they were just stressed about their owners being around, you know, whereas dogs obviously generally seem to love the companionship. One of the comments under my article was, I wish I could bring my burr constrictor in. Like, it's really not a precedent for every animal under the sun to come in. So I think I have actually moved my position on this. I used to be hardline anti-dog in office, but listening to Lindsay and listening to you, Henry, I have softened somewhat. I can't imagine that we're going to be having hordes of Labradors under our desks at the Financial Times, but you never know. You know, things change quickly. I'm a little bit less sceptical than I was when I started researching the article. And some of the places that allow dogs in, I think, including places in the military, but, you know, boarding schools with teachers having dogs around, it's not simply the wacky tech offices. And I think this is only going one way. Exactly. So let's talk again in a couple of years and we will both have our miniature schnauzers at our feet. (coughs) Thanks to Lindsay Bumps and Henry Mance for this episode. Please do get in touch with us. We want to hear from you. We're at workingit at ft.com or with me at Isabel Barrick on Twitter. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. Working It is produced by Novel for the Financial Times. Thanks to my dog-owning producer, Anna Sinfield, and executive producer, Joe Wheeler. I'm not sure about her dog status. And we have editorial direction from the FT's own Renee Kaplan and production support from Persis Love. Thank you for listening.